Right. Yeah, we're going to look at we're going to look at the Bible together. We're going to carry on our series in Genesis, looking at uh, kind of journeying with Abraham and Sarah, uh, and particularly today, journeying with Lot and his daughters in Genesis chapter nineteen. So I'm going to read Genesis 19, verses 30 to 38. Genesis 19, 30 to 38. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the elder daughter said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man round here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the elder daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day, the elder daughter said to the younger, last night I slept with my father, let's get him to drink wine again tonight. And you go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The elder daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Right. I really appreciate your prayers, Helen. No, in all seriousness, it's not a passage we would jump to and go, come on, let's go for it on this one. But we've come to the end of Lot's part in this story, certainly in the narrative. This is where we finish seeing Lot in this story. We've been following Abraham and Sarah and Lot's been there, kind of in the background, bobbing along in the background. Lot's there and he... Uh, he has different parts to play in the story and we see Lot and his daughters here and this is kind of the end we see of them. And the question I might immediately ask is how on earth did they get here? We've seen Lot set off with Abraham. In chapter 12 with Abraham and Sarah we see Lot goes with him and they, off they go and he goes to the promised land with them. He follows where they go. We see after a while they're kind of the flocks and herds, there are too many flocks and herds, Abraham and Lot, they've become too rich and wealthy and so they need to separate and there's dispute between the, the, the shepherds and the herdsmen. And so Lot, we see him in chapter 13, choose the, the land of the plain of the Jordan. It looks beautiful, it looks wonderful, it's, it's great for tending his sheep and his goats and whatever else he's got. Um, and he chooses this land of the Jordan. 
We find out by chapter 14 he's actually settled in Sodom, it seems, or he's nearby anyway. Maybe he's still in the plains of the Jordan at that point, but he's been captured with all uh, the kings who've been captured, uh, all those different uh, kings who came together. They've been captured by the other kings who came together, however many kings there were. Nine, then there was, anyway, there were nine kings in the battle. Um, Abraham's gone and he's rescued him. And then we see him again in chapter 19 and he's in Sodom and he's rescued. He's rescued from Sodom as God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see Lot encourages his, uh, his sons-in-law to come and they won't come. And then Lot seems to hesitate as Dan was telling us last week. And then they, they, they drag him out of the city, almost, they lead him out by the hand and he flees to to Zoar and even then his wife looks back and his wife he loses his wife she becomes a pillar of salt can't even imagine what that was like but we end up with Lot it seems and his daughters have fled to Zoar and then this is the kind of last we see of Lot in the story obviously he's referred to later on in scripture as Dan showed us some of last week but he's here his wife died his sons-in-law are gone wiped out in Sodom it's just Lot and his daughters have escaped and we land here and we see a combination of circumstances and fear and desperation and sin and bad choices lived out and worldliness leading to a pretty desperate sad end to the story for Lot and his daughters and even in the conclusion of the passage we conclude looking forward to the birth of the Moabites and the Ammonites who if we took a look forward are going to end up being a pretty big problem for the people of Israel in times to come in fact this is just another one of those passages that we just love to gloss over and not go there last week Dan described the passage as a shocking a bit like an electric fence that it's going to shock you, it's going to hit you. It's going to feel like being, being hit. Well, perhaps here we could let our guard down a bit. Phew, that's over. Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. The shocking events have passed. Now Lot has been rescued. Now we can move on. And then this. Last time Dan took us to 2 Peter chapter 2. And we could ask ourselves the question, why does the Bible describe Lot as righteous? But it does. He believed in the God of Abraham, as Dan was telling us last week. I won't go there and read. He's inconsistent, but then we're mixed bags too. We're inconsistent. The Bible calls Lot righteous. But if last week was like an electric fence that shocks us, then I think actually this passage just follows up as a big punch to the stomach. Because you know what, as I read, I feel myself looking at Lot and his daughters and I just want to ask, in and of myself, why on earth did God rescue Lot? Why did he do it? What's the point? Look at this mess. And the legacy, the Moabites and the Ammonites. You see, in Numbers chapter 25, we see the Moabites 
We won't turn there, but you can look at it later if you want. The Moabites leading the Israelites into horrible acts of worship to their gods. We see later in 1 Kings when Solomon kind of, kind of goes downhill towards the end of his life. We see in 1 Kings chapter 11, we see that Solomon followed uh, 1 Kings 11 and verse 5. He followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. What a mess! We could look at it and say, well, here is Lot's legacy. We can see these verses right here and think, well, this is what saving Lot led to. Why? Why on earth? What on earth is going on here? What are you doing, God? And then, oh, it hits me. It hits you. Why did God save Lot? A mixed bag, a bit messed up, someone who ends up in a cave, in a mess, and his legacy of these nations that become a problem for the Israelites going forward. I'm thinking, why, God? Why did you do it? And I think, what am I thinking? What am I thinking? If I'm going to ask, why did you save Lot? Well, God, why did you save me? Why on earth did you save me? Put away your pride, Rich. Humble yourself. Stop being like the Pharisee in the parable in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We sing about it in so many songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I don't deserve it. I have not earned it. It's your grace on me. And we could go on. But even looking at this passage, I can still want to see what has Lot done to warrant the title righteous. How did he justify God saving him? Well, he doesn't. And neither do I. And neither do you. We don't deserve salvation. We cannot earn it either beforehand or, in fact, afterwards. You see, in the story of Lot, and even looking at this now, we see the grace and love of God for people. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy 2, 
and verse 9. This is where this leads to. We kind of talked about the the Moabites and the Ammonites. They've got cause all these problems for the Israelites. But what do we see in Deuteronomy chapter 2? It's the, the people of God are wandering in the wilderness and they're coming to the place where they're to come to. They're getting there. Deuteronomy 2 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to, said to me, do not harass the Moabites or provoke them to war. For I'll not give you any part of their land. I have given Ar to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And in verse 19. When you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war, for I'll not give you any possession of any land beginning, belonging to the Ammonites. I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. God loves people. God loves Lot. And we see here the birth of the Moabites and the Ammonites, and God looks after them. God prepares a place for them. God, you can go on and look in those passages in, in, in Deuteronomy and see how God had enabled them to drive out the people in the lands that they were going to settle in. And God looks after them. God, the punch to the stomach is this. Both, both, I don't deserve it either. But let me lift my eyes just that little bit further to see how big is God's love? How big is God's sovereignty? How big is God's plan for the world? Kind of go, oh, yeah, but it's not Abraham and his people. It's not, well, it was Lot, I suppose, but Lot seems to have drifted off in some direction. It's not, it's not Abraham and Isaac, the promised one. It's not them. No, no, God, God's got a vision for the whole world. That's what he promised to Abraham. Through you, all nations will be blessed. can lift our eyes again here. Even as we stare into this black, ugly mess of an end of chapter 19, what it's showing us is God's grace and love. Why did he save Lot? Why did he save me? Because of his grace. Because of his love. Lord, not, let me not be proud. Melt my heart for the lost. Fill me with your compassion for people. Because I see it here. I see your compassion for Lot, for his daughters, for their descendants. That I could just want to go, what? What was the point in that? So a bit of a punch to the stomach. But as we remember this great love of God, we can learn from this too. Perhaps to avoid some of the things that Lot and his daughters fall into. I just want to make really two points. How are we going to live? Will we live by faith rather than fear? And will we live God's way rather than the world's way? So will we live by faith and not fear? How does this passage start? Genesis 19, verse 30. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. We were talking about this at breakfast time. And in some ways, this is a little bit, this is almost a bit comical, this bit. It's not comical beyond this. But how did, he, how did we end last, last time? Or, or maybe partway through the chapter. 
in verse, in verse 18. Or the end of verse 17, what do they say to him? Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. Lot said to them, no, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes and you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here's a town near enough to run to and it's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. So Lot's scared to flee to the mountains. And then we get to verse 30 and he says, I'll flee to this town instead. And now we're hearing... Well, he was too scared to flee to the mountains, so he went to Zoar. Now he's so scared to stay in Zoar that he's fled to the mountains. It's almost comical. We see Lot's fear leads him to Zoar. And then Lot's fear leads him out of Zoar. Or we could put it this way. Fear stops him going to the mountains. And then actually it's fear that leads him to the mountains. We could argue, well, he ends up where the men told him to go, the angels in, in Sodom. That's all good then. No. No. Well, he arrived at the right place. Didn't he do the right thing? He got to the mountains eventually. No, you see, a man who is following fear. Flee, go. I'm telling you, you can be saved. Leave the city and go to the mountains. Oh, well, I can't quite make it to the mountains. I'll go to this town. Okay, I suppose you can go to that town. Oh, I don't want to stay in this town. I'll go to the mountains. He's just being driven back and forth by his fear. We're called to walk by faith, to live by faith, to follow where God is leading us, to trust him, not responding in fear, but in faith. Because God sees our hearts. He knows our, our attitudes, our, our motivations. He's not calling us to grudgingly do the right thing, but to follow him. To, to catch hold of what he's saying and go, okay, that looks a bit scary, but yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm going after you. I'm going after what you're saying. And we see here, even in this first verse, Lot distracted by fear. And if we take into account the previous passage, paralyzed even. Unable... He believes in the God of Abraham, but he's unable to trust what he's being told, to, to live out what God is saying to him. And for us, do we recognise when our circumstances are hard, when fear can rise, that we have a God whose love for us is so strong that we can trust him in everything. We can trust him and press on to hold on in faith in times of uncertainty in the waiting for something you've longed for for years. In the moment when it feels like everything has gone wrong, we can trust him. Will we live by faith and not fear? And secondly, will we live God's way and not the world's way? We've seen this come up in Lot's previous actions in, in chapter 13. We see the, the, the herdsmen quarrelling, where's the space? We, we, we haven't got space for our herds, what are we going to do? In chapter 13 uh, and, uh, and verse 8 and 9, Abraham says, well, let's not have this quarrelling, you choose, where do you want to go? 
You take some play. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And Lot, in verse 10 of chapter 13, looked around, saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. You see, Lot sees the lush plain, sees what looks good with his eyes, sees what, yeah, this will be good for me, I think. He sees what looks good by the world's standards and says, yeah, that's what I'm going to have. That's what I'm going to go for. Kidner, in his commentary on, on Genesis, sums up, he doesn't say much about chapter 19, verse 30 to 38, but he sums up, says, looking back at chapter 13, so much stemmed from a self-regarding choice. Lot looking and saying, that looks good for me. A self-regarding choice and persistence in it. So much stems from there. So we see it in Lot's previous actions. Just look, you can see what his eyes can see. And he thinks, that looks good. That looks good in a worldly way. I'm going to go for that. That will be good for my sheep. That'll be good for me. And we see it in his daughter's plotting here. Just these simple words. In verse 31, our father is old and there is no man round here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. As is the custom all over the earth. This is what's in their mind. This is what, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what's supposed to go about. This is what happens all over the world. Now, of course, we could look and say, actually, this is there's, there's God's plan in this. Be fruitful and increase in number. Go, go and do that. But what's their focus? That, this is what the custom is all over the world. What do we see in the world? What does the world tell us is right? What does the world tell us is important and is where we should find our value and our hope and our identity? The world tells us all sorts of things. And you see, in, these, in this moment, Lot's daughters are feeling this. This is the custom all over the world. We need to make this happen. We must have children. We must carry on our line. And they found themselves in a place they wouldn't want to be. It's a desperate place, frankly. They've lost their fiancés in Sodom. And in the midst of that, their father certainly hasn't stood up and protected them in that previous story, to put it mildly. Now they've gone, they've gone to this small town, okay, there's a town, something, there's some people around. Now to the mountains on their own, just them and their dads, living in a cave. No one here. A place of desperation. A place... But they've come to the point, we've got to make this happen. Rather than trusting in God. Rather than in trusting, God, I don't know why we've come here. I don't know why we're in this place. I don't know what's going to happen going forward. But I'm trusting you. Encouraged by what Louise brought earlier on. that We can be in whatever circumstance, whatever place, whatever 
dark place, whatever place of waiting and longing and, and thinking, is this ever going to happen? Maybe it won't, I don't know. But we can lift our eyes and see through his eyes, get a new perspective. The circumstance hasn't changed, but now, God, I see, I can trust you. But here, they're stuck in this place of desperation, leading to the ugly mess that follows. Ugly, ugly mess. Desperate, fearful, looking at, this is what the world says. For us, what, what does the world tell us? What does the culture around us proclaim is good and, and this is where we should find our value and our identity and our hope? What do we need in our lives to find value and identity and security? Well, along similar lines, so often it can, it can tell us, well, value is found in being in a relationship. Happiness is found in, in having that right relationship and if it's not making you happy, then move on and find another one. And if you're not in one, then you desperately need to have one because that is what is going to bring you happiness and security and, and affirmation and everything. Singleness, often seen as a, maybe not even second best, but way down the list. Or a long way second best, let me put it that way. Something to be avoided, something to be short-lived. That's what the world can tell us. The world can tell us that our value is found in the things that we have. In a good house, in a nice car, in lots of things. Potentially in, in that progress of growing up, of getting good grades at school, of potentially going to university and, and then getting a good job and meeting the right person and then getting married and then having children and one day, one day, one day having grandchildren. And then we want, this, is, this is the progression. This is the way that it should be. We deserve these things. That's, the, that's, that's, what, that's what's going to make me fulfilled and valued. And ultimately, the world will say to us, well, you can be whatever you want to be. You get to choose. Don't let anyone stand in your way. And that is what is supposed to happen. That's where you find value. That's where you find your identity. When you don't let anyone else get in your way. Live for yourself. This is where we find our value and our identity. That's what the world is saying to us. And the world can say all sorts of other things. But what does God say? Romans 12 and verse 2. God says, or Paul says this. Romans 12 and verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. In Proverbs 3. These wonderful words, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. And he will make your path straight. Or in another, another way of putting, he will direct your path. He'll do it. What does God say? God says this. 
Whether you're married, single, you've got children, you're childless, you're rich, you're poor, you're successful, you're unsuccessful in the world's eyes, whatever it might be, your identity is in him. Your value is found in him. Do we trust what he says about relationships and possessions and success and all the things the world will scream at us? You need this, you need this, you need this. You're not in the right place. You need this or that or the other. God says, no, you find your value and your hope and your identity in me. And it's so much better. But this is how it is, even within the church. Well, so easily worldly ideas can creep in. But we're called to be this countercultural people, the family of God. We've had a couple of conversations with different people about the way we have to have the chairs out at the moment. And the, the unintended thing, or, or just the, the fact that it means, actually, I can clearly look out and see couples, families, individuals on their own. And we kind of need to do that at the moment because we've got to keep household bubbles separate and we've got to do it. But actually, in one sense, it's a bit of a prov provocation. When we don't have to do that, I don't want to be spread out, families on their own, individuals on their own, couples on their own. Now, obviously, we can choose to sit wherever we want to. But actually, we're a family together. Actually, looking out, it is a... To those who are at home, as I look out across the room, I can see different family groups and different individuals and different things. It's, it's really stark and obvious because of what we have to do at the moment. But actually, we're the church. We're the family of God. And actually, in one sense, I wish we didn't have to do this. But in another way, actually, it is a really actually helpful, stark reminder. This isn't what we want to do normally. Not just because we don't want to have big gaps between everyone, but because we are. We want to be welcoming one another into our, our families and our households and individuals and different people and, and all of that because we are the family of God together. Just on one example. The world and its ideas can creep in. Do we value marriage and singleness and the value of being a couple who's childless and the value of a family altogether. Actually, we're all valuable in the, the eyes of God, the widower and the, the young one on their own, everyone. Not because we're married or we've got children or because we're single or because we're widowed or because, but because we're loved by God. And all those different things are valued by him. And we could go into so many different uh, examples there. But this is what it's to be, to be the church, to be countercultural, to say, actually, we're not following what the world says. We're not going to look around and go, this is the custom across the whole of the world. No, actually, this is the way of God. And we're going to follow that in everything. More so, are we content to trust in God? To know his great love for us, to believe that he has the best for us, whether it's what we would have chosen, uh, what we would have chosen for ourselves or not. You see, that comes back again to Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind so that we may be able to see what God's perfect will is and to trust that and to get hold of that and to follow that. I can say even in standing here as a member of staff for City Church, the world would have looked on as I made that choice and said, what? I'm not a qualified pastor, but I am in a biblical sense. I'm not a worldly qualified pastor. I'm a PhD qualified engineer. But actually what God was saying is put that down and do this. And it could have, and Nikki will testify to the fact that we had different conversations and times of prayer and wrestling with, is God really saying this? What if it goes wrong? It doesn't make sense. Could easily cave into fear or into the, the worldly wisdom of, well, this is what you're trained in and this is, what you've, this is how far you've come here. Keep going in this because that will be really good for you. But are we going to trust what God is saying and go after what he says? Let's not be deceived by the world, but trust and celebrate God's way. Recognising actually all that certainty and security and, and one, actually it's really pretty much sinking sand. It's not solid. It's not, oh yes, all those qualifications and all those things. Only God's way is secure. Celebrating his way, living for him and the things of him, trusting that he has the best for us. We read from 2 Corinthians 4. Two Corinthians chapter four and verse sixteen. Do we trust in him? Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, not on the qualifications or the desperate situation or the whatever it may be or the worldly answer but on the on what is unseen since what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal will we live by faith not fear will we live god's way and not the world's way we see fear and worldly thinking right in the depths of this passage and we see the mess that comes but God's got a different way for us let's trust him let's follow him let's go after it let's be the people of God who are countercultural to the world around us and let's trust him individually in those moments that are or in those long-term long-standing situations that are, will this ever change I'm going to keep trusting him I'm going to keep trusting him. I'm going to keep trusting him because he knows what is best for me. As we conclude, we see Lot here. As we've said, he's described in 2 Peter as righteous Lot, who was tormented by all that was going on around him in Sodom. He believes in the God of Abraham. 
But here we see him in a mess, not trusting, not following, fearfully fleeing, ending up in a cave, ultimately drunk and not aware of what's happening. And as we respond, humbling ourselves before this lavish grace of God, this incredible grace of God that cuts through the, uh, cuts through the question, why did you save Lot? And why did you save me? As we humble ourselves before that grace, trusting him, not giving in to fear, not following the world's way, but his way. Let me encourage us, just even in, in kind of being kind of uh, encouraged there by, by just what happens to Lot here, to Ephesians chapter 5. Lot gets drunk and has no idea what's going on. If I can turn to the right page. Ephesians chapter 5. We've been used to the second part of this. We've said it an awful lot. In verse 17 and 18, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead what? Be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And as it goes on, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit. Just even in that kind of prophetic sense, we see Lot, he gets drunk, he doesn't know what's going on. God calls us, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit and follow me. Be filled with the Spirit and follow me. Be, be encouraged, encourage one another, be strengthened to live out your life for him. I'd encourage us, we're going to respond by just asking God to fill us with the Spirit. Again, to fill us with his Spirit. As we recognise this lavish grace, as we say, no, I want to live by faith. As we say, no, I want to follow God's way. Let's be filled with the Spirit. I'm going to pray now and I'll come back and we'll respond after we've, we've sung.